0: This is the catechism part I prepared y'all for, right? What is our only hope in life and in death? That we are not our own, but belong, body and soul, both in life and death, to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. That's the main idea of our text this morning. That's the main idea of this section, is that we as Christians are not our own, but belong fully and finally to God. And the exhortation of the text flows from that. It's very clear in verse 20, glorify God with your body. That's the exhortation this morning. And so we'll pray, and then we'll take apart the text. We'll set the stage and and get into it together. Let's pray. Let's go before the Lord for help. God, we ask that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit, that you would animate us with your love, and that you would govern us by your word. Help us to submit ourselves to it. God, we thank you that you have spoken to us by Christ. And we ask that you would help us to be obedient. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And so we're going to survey the text, and really there are two major parts, as you see in your outline there, that the body is for the Lord, and that our bodies belong to the Lord. And then the third section, and we're going to talk about very briefly, how we can glorify God with our bodies. And so as we approach this text, it's important to keep in mind the context. And last week we saw uh, Paul start in verse 9 saying, Do not be deceived and give us this list of sins that are... um, describe people that aren't going to get into heaven. People that might deceive themselves into thinking, hey, I'm going to heaven, but I'm going to keep living this way. And Paul's saying, no, if you are not changed by Jesus, if you are not changing, then you are not going to get into heaven. If you are content to sit in your sin rather than struggle against your sin, this is a sign that you have not met Christ. You must repent. After all, he says in verse 11, you used to be like this. These sins describe all of you in one way or another how you used to live. It describes your old life, but now you've been changed by Jesus. Right? Some of you used to be like this, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And so in chapter 6, and that which has come before this, and that which has come after it, Paul is really saying to the Corinthians, be who you are. Stop living according to the flesh, according to the sin that used to be your master. You are not under the law of sin. You are under grace, and so live in light of that grace. Live in light of who you are in Christ. Become in practice who you've been declared to be. You've been declared in Christ to be holy, to be washed, to be sanctified, to be justified. If you remember last week, we defined these terms. We said washed simply means to be cleansed of our sin. When we are caught in our sins, it's a little bit like we are covered in mud all the time. The dirt up underneath our fingernails and all that, and we're just trying, we can't get clean no matter how hard we try. But when Christ comes and interrupts our lives from sins, He takes us and He plunges us in a spiritual, in a metaphorical way, uh, beneath a cleansing flood of water, gets that nail brush out, gets all the dirt out from underneath of our fingers. He makes us clean. So if there is a fountain filled with blood that flows from Emmanuel's veins, And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. That's what it means to be washed. When we know Jesus, we are losing all of those guilty stains. We also talked about being sanctified. Uh, We wanted to distinguish it from the process of sanctification, which we're all in, right? We're all becoming more and more holy. We are changed by God and changing. That's what the sanctification process is, is. We're changing to become more and more like Jesus. But when Paul's using the word sanctified here, he means changed already. He's talking about how we have been set apart as the people of God. Christ has cleansed us and set us apart as his own. He's also said that we have been justified in Christ. It means we've been declared to be right with God. It's as if we were prisoners to our sin, guilty and condemned justly. But once we put our faith in Christ, God declared not guilty. And we were prisoners that were forgiven and freed. Not only that, but the positive aspect of justification means that God exalts over us, that he sees us as if we were Christ because of our union with Christ. It means that we are celebrated. It's, it's as if um, Jesus won the Congressional Medal of Honor, and then instead of having it hung around his neck, it's hung around our neck. Justification means not only that we are acquitted of our sins, but that we are credited with Jesus' righteousness by faith. This is what defines the Christian now, that we have been changed, washed, sanctified, justified, and consequently, we are to live in a different way. The Corinthians, though, are not living according to their new identity. They've fallen into living according to their Oh, their old identity, their old sins, their old ways of life. And Paul is saying, "Don't be deceived. You might be justifying these sins with some slogans that you've picked out of my teaching, but they are not justified." Um, the idea of slogans is really essential to understanding the Book of Corinthians as a whole, and especially this section. So it seems that like Paul has written to them in the past, and they've taken some of his words, some of his phrases, and kind of twisted them to serve their own purposes, right? So we actually see the first one in verse 12, and it comes up again and again. Everything is permissible for me. A lot of your Bibles will probably have quotes around that to try to show you. That's a Corinthian slogan. This is what the Corinthians are saying. He's saying, you are saying everything is permissible or lawful for me. And then Paul's saying, but not everything is beneficial. He uses the same phrase again. Everything is permissible or lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. So the Corinthians, it seems, have been arguing that since everything is permissible for them, they are free to live and let live, right? To do whatever they want without any repercussion. That because they are free in Christ, they can be antinomians. In other words, because they are free in Christ, They can sin all they want, and it doesn't really matter. And Paul is saying, no, freedom is not the absence of restrictions. All true freedom comes with restrictions, right? If you get your license, you become free to drive on the roads. But you are not free to go 151 miles per hour down Route 151. You will get pulled over. It's outside of the restrictions. You can try it or you can ask Josh what that's like. You're not free to go as fast as you want. Your freedom of having your license and driving is restricted by the speed limit. Likewise, a fish, if it jumps out on land and flops around, it's not free on land. It's enslaved there. It's dying there. But if it lives according to its nature and stays in the water, that's where it's going to be its freest. Likewise, real freedom for us is found in living inside of the right restrictions of God's moral law. Real freedom is found in loving neighbor above self and in loving God supremely. And that's what Paul is going to push on here. He's going to tweak their little slogan. He's saying it might be permissible for you, but you have to Restrict your Christian liberties according to two principles, and they are the principle of love and of lordship. We see love in the first part of verse 12. Everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. He says it in chapter 10, verse 23. Everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible, but not, any, not everything builds up. And so Paul is getting at, when he's talking about it being beneficial, he's talking about it being beneficial for others. He kind of fills up this term later on in the letter to mean, you are asking yourself, before you take any action, is this going to help my brothers and sisters in Christ more faithfully follow and delight in Jesus? Like an action might be okay for me to take, but if it causes my brother to stumble then I should restrain myself from doing it. I need to ask myself a question about how how my actions will impact those around me before I take it. So there's the question of love. Is it loving for me to do this? Will this action help my brothers and sisters more faithfully follow Jesus? Paul comments on this a little bit differently in Galatians 5.13. He writes, For you were called to be free... Brothers and sisters, only do not use this freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but serve one another through love. We're not to use our freedom in Christ as an excuse to sin. Instead, we ought to ask ourselves, is this action helpful for someone else as it relates to their relationship with Jesus? Does this action build up Everything is permissible, the Corinthians say. But Paul says not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible or lawful, the Corinthians say. But Paul says, I will not be mastered by anything. That brings us to the second principle of lordship. Sin is no longer the master of the believer. Christ is our master. But what seems to be happening when they're taking these actions and using Paul's sayings that they've turned into slogans to justify their sin is that they're doing this because they've been mastered by their sin and so I think a second question to ask of any action is am I taking this action because it honors God because it builds up neighbor or because I am mastered by it because I can't choose to do anything different am I enslaved to this desire or this sin right because ultimately what's in The scope of this section of Corinthians is the the sins the Corinthians are justifying are sexual in nature, right? They're they're justifying. um, Most people think uniting with prostitutes. Others think that it goes further than that into all kinds of sexual immorality. I think the application is the same. They've been mastered by their sexual desires, and Paul's saying you need to ask: Is this helpful for those who are following Jesus? And am I mastered by this? Do I show that Jesus is Lord by taking this particular action? Or am I proving myself to be enslaved to whatever this desire is? In the Corinthian case, sexual immorality. Let me give you a a story that I heard in relation to this that helped me kind of wrap my mind around it a little bit. Um, imagine a young man goes into his pastor's office and he's describing some of his struggles with lust to the pastor. He lays out how he has this pattern of sleeping with different women who are not his wife, um, but that it's inevitable. God's created him with such strong desires, such strong passions that there's not really anything he could do about it. Right? You've heard this, God made me this way and so I need to fulfill these desires. And pastor, in speaking with the young man, leans back and says this, Suppose I come to your room and I catch you and your girlfriend at the front end of this process. You're starting this inevitable process. And I take 10 $100 bills out of my pocket and I lay them on the desk and say, if you stop right now, this is yours. You can have the 10 $100 bills. What, What would you do? And the young man thought for a moment. And then he said, well, I'd take the cash. What happened to that irresistible, inevitable process? I think it's clear. One passion supplanted another. Right? Well, one passion may seem irresistible until a greater passion comes along. Here's the the point that I'm getting at. You belong to whatever you are most passionate about. You belong to what you love most. And so Paul is saying here, if you are enslaved to this action and are ultimately justifying it because you love it more than you love Jesus, that's problematic. Sin isn't your master if you are a Christian. You've been changed. You've been washed. You've been sanctified. You've been justified. He says it this way in Romans 6, verses 15 through 18. Don't you know that if you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of that one you obey, either of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. But thank God that although you used to be slaves of sin, you've obeyed from the heart the pattern of the teaching to which you were handed over. And having been set free from sin, you've become enslaved to righteousness. Church, what are you most passionate about? What threatens to master you and sit on the throne of your life rather than Christ? What are you tempted to obey in place of Jesus For the Corinthians, it was sexual immorality. And so they've said everything is permissible. That's their first argument. Their second argument and their second slogan shows up in verse 13, wherein they say, "Sex." I'm sorry, that's my translation. (laughs) Uh, They say, the food for the stomach and the stomach for food. Right? That makes sense. The food was created for the stomach and the stomach's created for food. They go together. Nothing wrong there. However, I'm sorry, and God will destroy them both, or God will do away with both of them. And so now to my translation, uh, what they're saying is, in the same way that the food is for the body and the stomach for food, and God's going to destroy those things, likewise, the sex, I'm sorry, sex is for the body and the body is for sex, And so there's not anything inherently wrong with it. This is just a natural process, and furthermore, God is going to destroy them at the end of time. Our bodies are going to be destroyed, and so their argument is what we do with our bodies is inconsequential. It doesn't matter. Because in the Corinthian mindset, there's this idea that there is a level to sin. The spiritual level, and this is where I'm able to sin, And that's separate from the physical level. The physical stuff's going to be destroyed, and so it doesn't matter, and, and what happens in the physical realm doesn't really count as sin. See what's going on here? And so Paul is actually going to press up against that and say, this is what you said. Food is for the stomach, and the stomach for food, and God will do away with both of them. And here's Paul. However, the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. Paul is saying your body matters. What you do with your body matters. That you can't drive a wedge between the spiritual self, the spiritual you, and the physical you. They are one in the same. Body and soul together make up the one person. And when you commit sexual sin with your body, this is sin. You are committing sin. The body matters. And Paul continues to bolster his argument in verse 14. He says this, God raised up the Lord. Why does the body matter? God raised up the Lord, that's Jesus, and will also raise us up by his power. To the contrary, the body is not temporary. The body is not going to be ultimately destroyed. But the body is going to exist on into eternity. That's the first part of his argument. He's saying, you've got it wrong. You think that the body's going to be destroyed and therefore it doesn't matter what you do with your body? No! The body isn't going to be destroyed. It's going to be resurrected. It's going to live forever, on into eternity. God cares what you do with your body. Friends, resurrection is central to our faith. Without the resurrection, we have no hope. Love what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. It says, the first man, referring to Adam, was from the earth a man of dust. The second man, this is Jesus, is from heaven. Like the man of dust, so are those who are of the dust. Like the man of heaven, so are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we will also bear the image of the man of heaven. For this corruptible body must be clothed with incorruptibility, and this mortal body must be clothed with immortality. When this corruptible body is clothed with incorruptibility and this mortal body is clothed with immortality, then the saying that is written will take place. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where death is your victory? Where death is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ has bought us the victory from the grave by dying in our place for our sins, living in our place a life of righteousness so that we might be justified, and He has risen from the dead as the firstfruits of the new creation to prove to us His power to forgive sin, His authority over every arena of our lives, His right to command us to obey Him and to glorify Him with our bodies. In Christ, we rise from the dust of the first man into the heavenly stars of the new man. In, in Christ, the grave is not our end, but glory. In Christ, mortality is swallowed up by immortality. In Christ, the sting of death is supplanted by the gift of life. We, as Christians, are, we, we do not die. We live forever, and there will come a day when Christ returns fully, and finally, that our bodies are resurrected and made new. This should thrill you. right? Heaven is, is not this disembodied state on a cloud, like strumming a harp, like you might have seen in Tom and Jerry. It's not boring. Heaven's not boring, it's better. It's thrilling. Meaning, we're not the only ones that get made new in heaven. Everything you see is going to be made new. The earth, like us, groans, looks forward to the day when Jesus will come and end all suffering and end sin's reign. I mean, Romans 8.20, right? For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in the hope, that the creation itself will also be set free from the bondage to decay. Creation is in bondage to decay. Into the glorious freedom of God's children. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with labor pains until now. Not only that, but we ourselves who have the Spirit as the firstfruits, we also groan within ourselves eagerly waiting for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. Heaven's not boring. It's better. You and I are made new. We have bodies that are not subject to decay, like the creation is made new, no longer subject to decay. I mean, if you just look outside at the, the Blue Ridge Mountains, you might be awed at their beauty. It's incredible. But, friends, the, the Blue Ridge Mountains now will not hold a candle to what they will be then, they will be glorified. Infinitely better. God is making all things new. He's making you and I new. Heaven is going to be exciting and I fear that we don't look forward to it because we suffer from a lack of imagination. I mean, try to sit and think about what the glories of heaven will be like. God is going to create not only this world but into the cosmos. We will be able to explore all of these things To his glory. The earth will be filled with worshipers, with the glory of the Lord. Sin will not stand in our way. We'll be able to travel wherever we want without worrying about getting pulled off of an airplane, right? Like, it's going to be great. Because we know it's going to be great, we are able to invest our lives. Now, with a consideration for the then. We're able to invest our lives here in looking forward to what will happen there. What I mean is we're able to sacrifice our time, our energy, our resources. We're able to give up our money, our bucket lists, our wants, our routine, our comfort to the end of making God's name known now. Because we know this is an eternal investment. It's an investment that will allow more people to come to know our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It will enable more people to taste and see that the Lord is good. Additionally, as we invest in heaven, we're making an investment in a place where moth and rust Do not destroy. Making an investment that will grow exponentially. God will see your faithfulness as you look forward to the resurrection. I love what uh, Jim Elliott says. You've probably heard it before. But he says, He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. He said that prior to his death as a missionary. And he lived it out. I wonder, do you look forward to the resurrection? Does it govern how you're living your life? How you are stewarding everything, including your body? Because, friends, your body is going to be raised. It matters to God. I think oftentimes we don't, like we... I don't know, Just we don't think about raising bodily from the dead. But it's been a part and parcel to the Christian faith forever. I, I enjoy the way the Apostles' Creed states it, right? I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic, that's universal church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life of everlasting this is what we are looking forward to as christians and this is where paul is putting the gaze of the corinthians he's saying your body matters because it's going to be resurrected he continues his argument in verse 15 if you look there don't you know that your bodies are a part of christ's body so should i take a part of christ's body and make it part of a prostitute absolutely not don't you know that anyone joined to a prostitute is one body with her for scripture says the two will become one flesh but anyone joined to the lord is one spirit with him the covenant of marriage is all about god your, your spouse, your relationship with your spouse, your marriage is a living parable of the gospel. You make promises to one another that bind the two of you together until death do you part. Within that commitment of marriage and that soil of promise grows up the pleasures that come from knowing one another intimately. And it teaches us about the commitments that God has made to us the promises that God has made to us, and how as we live in light of those promises, our pleasures grow in Christ. It teaches us about the joys that await us on the other side of eternity. Marriage teaches us about God, and it's an image that is employed here to show us that just like a man and a woman become one in the flesh when they are united in holy matrimony, so too are we as believers in some mysterious sense united to Jesus Christ. You are in union with Jesus. Spiritually, it's mind-blowing. You are one with Him. So don't miss the imagery here. Paul is saying if you join with A prostitute. And I would argue if you commit any kind of sexual immorality outside of the union of marriage, it's an affront to God. And in this case, with the prostitutes, it's as if you are uniting Jesus with the prostitute. Right? It's as if there is a grotesque surgery going on. That you have said, I'm united with Christ and that you are taking a knife and severing limbs and organs from Christ to whom they belong, and you are attaching them to someone that they don't belong to. Paul's saying this is unthinkable. What do light and darkness have in common? It's grotesque. Absolutely not. You belong to the Lord. You're united to the Lord. Don't unite yourself with someone else. Don't unite yourself with sin when you have been united to the Holy One. When you participate in sexual immorality, you are dishonoring God. It is grotesque. That's what Paul is saying. It's ugly. It's an unthinkable betrayal. I mean, for those of you that are married, imagine what it would be like for your spouse to cheat on you every day and to marry him or her knowing that they were going to cheat on you every day. This is what Christ has done for us. We sin and fail, and yet he's wed himself to us still. He loves us still. But he calls us, he's changed us, and he calls us to be changing, to be living in light of who he's made us, to be living in light of our union with him, so that we forsake all other loves, for His love. So that we would be most passionate about our relationship with Him. Therefore, Paul says, we are raised with Christ. The body will be raised. It matters. You are in union with Christ. Your physical body is in union with Christ. What you do with your body, you make Christ to do. Therefore, flee, verse 18, flee sexual immorality. We'll flesh that out in a minute. But first, he's going to give us three more reasons that we should honor God with our bodies. The first one is that the body is valuable. He's reiterating this. Now, verse 18 is notoriously difficult to interpret, and so I'll read it to you and then give you two different interpretations. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the person who is sexually immoral sins against his own body. The word other, which is probably in every one of your translations, simply is not in the Greek. It's just not there. And so what your uh, interpreters, what your translators have done, and they probably have a note to tell you that it's not there, what they've done is they've come and they've said, this word other will help us understand what's going on here because otherwise it doesn't really seem to jive with the rest of what Paul is saying. And so the point, if we include the word other of this verse, is that sexual sin is profoundly and uniquely self-destructive, that it affects you in a way that other sins do not. It is a terrible, terrible sin. That's the first interpretation. The second interpretation, and I will tell you that I lean this direction just a little bit, is this, that it should simply read, not every other sin, but every sin a person commits is outside the body, but the person who is sexually immoral sins against his own body, which seems to be nonsensical upon first glance. But if we keep in mind the sloganeering of the Corinthians, that they've made these slogans, and we read this as a Corinthian slogan, it makes much more sense. If they're saying, every sin a person commits is outside the body, and then Paul is rebutting that by saying, but the person who is sexually immoral sins against his own body. What's happening, remember those two levels, the Corinthians kind of have this pseudo-Gnostic view of things, that they can only sin on this spiritual level in the spiritual realm. Therefore, what they do with their body doesn't matter. And so the the meaning of their slogan would be, any sin we commit is only on the spiritual level. Every sin that we commit is on the spiritual level. Therefore, it doesn't matter what we do with our bodies. And Paul is saying once more, no, it does matter what you do with your body. Your physical sin and your spiritual sin, they're, they're part of the same person. You can't separate the two. Either way, the point is your body matters in verse 18. And that sexual sin, like all sin, is destructive. Flee sexual immorality because it is destructive. Second reason in verse 19. Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? whom you have from God. This, this is monumental. It doesn't cause us to quake and shake like it would have those Jewish readers who are more familiar with the Old Testament than we are. I mean, Even though we walked through Exodus for about a year, they, they would be more familiar with it than we are. But if you remember in that journey uh, out of Egypt, out of slavery and into sonship, into relationship with God, all of Exodus was building to this point wherein God's presence would, would dwell in the midst of the people where the tent of meeting, the the, um, tabernacle that was to come is kind of set up at their center. And they can be close to the presence of God, with the presence of God. That's what the whole narrative builds to. That the glory of the Lord would fill the temple. And later on we see that only the high priest is able to go into the immediate presence of God, into that holy of holies. That, That to which most... All Israelites could only imagine what it would be like to be in that Holy of Holies, to be in the imminent presence of God. And they could only view God from a distance. That presence of the Holy of Holies is no longer dwelling in the Holy of Holies, it's now dwelling in you. If you are a Christian, the Holy Spirit dwells in you. God's presence lives in you. That's staggering. Don't, don't you know? Don't commit sexual immorality because your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Remember, we saw this imagery earlier in chapter 3 where he talked about the whole church comes together and God's uniquely present among us uh, as his temple when we gather. But now he's employing the same imagery again to say you as an individual Christian have the Holy Spirit living inside you as his temple. You think the body doesn't have value? It's valuable enough for God to dwell within. Third reason, you, and this is the second part of verse 19, you are not your own. Every part of the Christian life is derivative of those five words. You are not your own. For you were bought at a price. We do not belong to ourselves. If you are Christian, you are duly owned. Not only does God own you by virtue of creating you, He also owns you by virtue of redeeming you. The picture here is of the slave trade, where one master would buy a slave from another. Jesus has purchased you from death and sin. Sin and self are no longer your master. You now belong to Christ who is like the master the slave loves. If you remember in Exodus 21, uh, slaves would be set free after so long. But there's that little um, interjection. But if a slave finds that he loves his master, doesn't want to leave his master, he can say so, and the master will take him and put an owl, like that giant nail thing, through his earloaf by the doorpost to show as a sign that he belongs to this master forever and ever. What's happening is we are being purchased by Christ to this master that we love and belong to forever and ever. He has marked us not by a hole in our ear but by a change of our hearts. We are not our own. We're bought at a price. First Peter 1.18 says it this way. You were redeemed not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. He owns you. He owns your body. And what you do with your body matters. God cares about your sexuality. That's why the primary application of this text is Glorify God with your body, and I think we could translate that last part. Glorify God with your body sexually, how you steward it. So what does it mean? How do we glorify God with our bodies in terms of our sexuality? First, we flee sexual immorality. This isn't all that complicated. If you're unmarried, it means no sex with anybody because you're not married. Pretty simple. That's what it means to flee sexual immorality for you is to not have sex. If you are married, it means to not have sex with anybody but your spouse. For both parties, it means that you need to flee any situation, any activity that might be sexual immorality or be leading you into sexual immorality. And so it means to flee pornography. Pornography is not helpful to you. It will become master over you. It is a sin that needs to be fled from. It does not honor God. We need to flee it both in its visual form and its literary form. Anything that tempts you towards sexual immorality needs to be run from. That's what the word flee means here in the Greek, like run away from, get away from. Flee is what it means, to flee. If you're confused about what fleeing looks like, uh, it looks like Joseph when he was in Potiphar's house. Some of you know that story in Genesis. Uh, he's doing all right for himself. Potiphar loves him, set him in charge of everything. But Joseph is a really good looking dude. And Potiphar's wife is like, I want to give me some of that. And so day after day, she's like coming to him and she's like, yo, Joseph, let's sleep together. And Joseph is like, no, I'm not into that. God's blessed me. I'm going to honor God. He's like, no, no, really sleep with me until one day she sets it up so that just she is in the place that he comes into and she jumps on him and is like, sleep with me. And he's like, no, I can't do that. And he runs away to the extent that like his clothes get torn off. Right? I don't know how tempting the situation was. I don't know how good-looking she was. But he fled. He runs away from the temptation. This is a great picture of what we are to do when tempted to sexual immorality. Run away from it. Not only sexual immorality, but any sin. Run away! Flee! Do not be mastered by anything but Christ. I wonder what, what circumstance or maybe even relationship do you need to flee from because it's causing you to commit or tempting you to commit sexual immorality? In Matthew 5, 29, Jesus says, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. Friends, for some of you, In terms of sexual immorality, it is plucking time. Get rid of your sin. Flee. Do not be deceived. Those who are mastered by sexual immorality rather than Christ will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. Those who love their sexual predilections more than our Savior prove themselves false. They prove not to know him at all. A tree is known by its fruit. And if the fruit you are bearing is unrepentant sin, then you do not know Christ. Repent. Flee. Honor him. All right, a couple subordinate applications, which I feel like most of you will be more into these than you were the former, right? (laughs) So these are secondary applications of this text because I think we don't just glorify God with our body in terms of our sexuality, but also in terms of how we steward it overall. So we want to glorify God with our diet. This means that we reject both overeating and poor eating, right? You don't need to eat a Cinnabon for every meal, although that would be delicious, right? Like, eat well, it also means that you don't want to starve yourself trying to look like somebody that's airbrushed on a magazine. Steward your body well. Glorify God with your body by eating well, taking care of your body. You know that diet always goes with exercise. That's the next one. We want to exercise. We want to glorify God by exercising. Reject laziness. You don't need to sit around for eight hours at a time. Like, Get up, move around, go for a walk, go for a run, ride a bike Do something. Go fishing. Take care of your body. Also reject idolizing exercise and idolizing your body, right? I think typically this manifests itself in my generation anyhow uh, in just going to the gym all the time. And typically, you know, the people that are mastered by this now because social media is really prevalent and so your, your meatheads usually have like videos of themselves posted on Facebook or on Twitter, and they're like, this is me deadlifting a thousand pounds. Check out how awesome I am. And they're, they're looking for affirmation through social media, right? They want people to click that like button. Yeah, I like it. You're doing great. Say, so look how great my body is. And the people affirm my body, and therefore they affirm me. No, we, we, we have our affirmation in Christ. Your identity is not in your sexuality. Your identity is not in your body image. Your identity is in Christ. And from that, we obey Christ. We want to glorify Him with our bodies. The last suggestion about how to glorify God with your body is to rest. Rest. God has designed us to have a healthy rhythm between work and rest. And some of you work too much. Like, some of y'all need to take a nap. It's funny, because others of you need to not take a nap. But, but some of you need to take a nap. Relax. Take a day off. One of the most important things that rest reminds us of is that God is sovereign, and you are not. That's the one I have to repeat to myself. I struggle with this. God is sovereign, my, and I am not. If I take a day off, the world is not going to end. Right? Likewise for you. If you take a day off, things are going to be okay. God has it under control. Rest. Your body needs it. Friends, we want to glorify God with our bodies because He owns not just the spiritual side of us, but the physical side of us. He owns all of us, and He is going to resurrect all of us into the new heavens and the new earth. He's going to make everything new. He's purchased us with the precious blood of Christ. Therefore, in response to this great love, we love Him by glorifying Him with our bodies. Because Jesus is our only hope in life and in death. Our only hope in life and in death is that we are not our own, but belong body and soul, both in life and death, to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, we thank you that your word is living and active. We pray that you would help us to yield to it, that we would allow it to press up against us and wound us in the areas that we need wounded, that we would submit ourselves uh, to your word like somebody with a broken leg submits to a physician who has to re-break it so that it will grow back properly. Father, help us to repent of our sin. Help us to think about how we might glorify you with all of our lives. Help us to live in light of the hope of the resurrection that is to come. Lord Jesus, we thank you for loving sinners such as us, for loving us enough to live and die in our place, to rise as the first fruits of the new creation so that we might be justified sanctified washed clean so that we might be your temple where your presence dwells so that we might have relationship with one another and with you what great love is this this is amazing grace and we thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.